When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading is by Martin Clifton. The Wisdom of Father Brown by G.K. Chesterton Chapter 1 the absence of Mr. Glass. The consulting rooms of Dr. Orion Hood, the eminent criminologist and specialist in certain moral disorders, lay along the seafront at Scarborough, in a series of very large and well-lighted French windows, which showed the North Sea like one endless outer wall of blue-green marble. In such a place the sea had something of the monotony of a blue-green dado, for the chambers themselves were ruled throughout by a terrible tidiness, not unlike the terrible tidiness of the sea. It must not be supposed that Dr. Hood's apartments excluded luxury or even poetry. These things were there, in their place. But one felt that they were never allowed out of their place. Luxury was there. There stood upon a special table eight or ten boxes of the best cigars but they were built upon a plan so that the strongest were always nearest the wall and the mildest nearest the window. A tantalus containing three kinds of spirits, all of liqueur excellence, stood always on this table of luxury. But the fanciful have asserted that the whisky, brandy and rum seemed always to stand at the same level. Poetry was there. The left-hand corner of the room was lined with as complete a set of English classics as the right hand could show of English and foreign physiologists. But if one took a volume of Chaucer or Shelley from that rank, its absence irritated the mind like a gap in a man's front teeth. One could not say the books were never read. Probably they were. But there was a sense of their being chained to their places, like the Bibles in the old churches. Dr. Hood treated his private bookshelf as if it were a public library. And if this strict scientific intangibility steeped even the shelves laden with lyrics and ballads, and the tables laden with drink and tobacco, it goes without saying that yet more of such heathen holiness protected the other shelves that held the specialist's library and the other tables that sustained the frail and even fairy-like instruments of chemistry or mechanics. Dr. Hood paced the length of his string of apartments, bounded, as the boys' geographies say, on the east by the North Sea, and on the west by the serried ranks of his sociological and criminologist's library. He was clad in an artist's velvet, but with none of an artist's negligence. His hair was heavily shot with grey, but growing thick and healthy. His face was lean, 
but sanguine and expectant. Everything about him and his room indicated something at once rigid and restless, like that great northern sea by which, on pure principles of hygiene, he had built his home. Fate, being in a funny mood, pushed the door open and introduced into those long, strict, sea-flanked apartments one who was perhaps the most startling opposite of them and their master. In answer to a curt but civil summons, the door opened inwards, and there shambled into the room a shapeless little figure, which seemed to find its own hat and umbrella as unmanageable as a mass of luggage. The umbrella was a black and prosaic bundle long past repair, the hat was a broad-curved black hat, clerical but not common in England. The man was the very embodiment of all that is homely and helpless. The doctor regarded the newcomer with a restrained astonishment, not unlike that he would have shown if some huge but obviously harmless sea-beast had crawled into his room. The newcomer regarded the doctor with that beaming but breathless geniality which characterises a corpulent charwoman who has just managed to stuff herself into an omnibus. It is a rich confusion of social self-congratulation and bodily disarray. His hat tumbled to the carpet, his heavy umbrella slipped between his knees with a thud, he reached after the one and ducked after the other, but with an unimpaired smile on his round face spoke simultaneously as follows. My name is Brown. Pray excuse me. I've come about the business of the McNabs. I have heard you often help people out of such troubles. Pray excuse me if I am wrong. By this time he had sprawlingly recovered the hat, and made an odd little bobbing bow over it, as if setting everything quite right. "'I hardly understand you,' replied the scientist, with cold intensity of manner. "'I fear you have mistaken the chambers. I am Dr. Hood, and my work is almost entirely literary and educational. It is true that I have sometimes been consulted by the police in cases of peculiar difficulty and importance, but—oh, this is of the greatest importance!' broke in the little man called Brown. Why her mother won't let them get engaged? And he leaned back in his chair in radiant rationality. The brows of Dr. Hood were drawn down darkly, but the eyes under them were bright with something that might be anger or might be amusement. And still, he said, I do not quite understand. You see, they want to get married, said the man with the clerical hat. Maggie McNabb and young Todd Hunter want to get married. Now what can be more important than that? The great Orion Hood's scientific triumphs had deprived him of many things, some said of his health, others of his God, but they had not wholly despoiled him of his sense of the absurd. At the last plea of the ingenuous priest a chuckle broke out of him from inside, and he threw himself into an armchair in an ironical attitude of the consulting physician. Mr. Brown, he said gravely, it is quite fourteen and a half years since I was personally asked to test a personal problem. Then it was the case of an attempt to poison the French president at a Lord Mayor's banquet. It is now, I understand, a question of whether some friend of yours called Maggie is a suitable fiancé for some friend of hers called Todd Hunter. Well, Mr. Brown, I am a sportsman. I will take it on. I will give the McNabb family my best advice as good as I gave the French Republic and the King of England. No, better. Fourteen years better. I have nothing else to do this afternoon. Tell me your story. The little clergyman called Brown thanked him with unquestionable warmth, but still with a queer kind of simplicity. 
It was rather as if he were thanking a stranger in a smoking-room for some trouble in passing the matches, than as if he were, as he was, practically thanking the curator of Kew Gardens for coming with him into a field to find a four-leaf clover. With scarcely a semicolon after his hearty thanks, the little man began his recital. I told you my name was Brown. Well, that's the fact. And I'm a priest of the little Catholic church I dare say you've seen beyond those straggly streets, where the town ends towards the north. In the last and straggliest of those streets, which runs along the sea like a sea-wall, there is a very honest but rather sharp-tempered member of my flock, a widow called MacNab. She has one daughter, and she lets lodgings, and between her and her daughter, and between her and her lodgers, well, I dare say there is a great deal to be said on both sides. At present she has only one lodger, the young man called Todd Hunter, but he has given more trouble than all the rest, for he wants to marry the young woman of the house. And the young woman of the house, asked Dr. Hood, with huge and silent amusement, what does she want? Why, she wants to marry him, cried Father Brown, sitting up eagerly. That's just the awful complication. It is indeed a hideous enigma, said Dr. Hood. This young James Todd Hunter, continued the cleric, is a very decent man, as far as I know. But then nobody knows very much. He is a bright, brownish little fellow, agile like a monkey, clean-shaven like an actor, and obliging like a born courtier. He seems to have quite a pocket full of money, but nobody knows what his trade is. Mrs. McNabb, therefore, being of a pessimistic turn, is quite sure it is something dreadful, and probably connected with dynamite. The dynamite must be of a shy and noiseless sort, for the poor fellow only shuts himself up for several hours of the day, and studies something behind a locked door. He declares his privacy is temporary and justified, and promises to explain before the wedding. That is all that anyone knows for certain, but Mrs. McNabb will tell you a great deal more than even she is certain of. You know how the tales grow like grass on such a patch of ignorance as that. There are tales of two voices heard talking in the room, though, when the door is opened, Todd Hunter is always found alone. There are tales of a mysterious tall man in a silk hat, who once came out of the sea-mists, and apparently out of the sea, stepping softly across the sandy fields, and through the small back garden at twilight, till he was heard talking to the lodger at his open window. The colloquy seemed to end in a quarrel. Todd Hunter dashed down his window with violence, and the man in the high hat melted into the sea-fog again. This story is told by the family with the fiercest mystification, but I really think Mrs. McNabb prefers her own original tale, that the other man, or whatever it is, crawls out every night from the big box in the corner, which is kept locked all day. You see, therefore, how this sealed door of Todd Hunter's is treated as the gate of all the fancies and monstrosities of the Thousand and One Nights. And yet there is the little fellow in his respectable black jacket, as punctual and innocent as a parlour clock. He pays his rent to the tick, he is practically a teetotaler, he is tirelessly kind with the younger children, and can keep them amused for a day on end, and, last and most urgent of all, he has made himself equally popular with the eldest daughter, who is ready to go to church with him to-morrow. A man warmly concerned with any large theories, has always a relish for applying them to any triviality. The great specialist, having condescended to the priest's simplicity, condescended expansively. He settled himself with comfort in his armchair, and began to talk in the tone of a somewhat absent-minded lecturer. Even in a minute instance, 
it is best to look first to the main tendencies of nature. A particular flower may not be dead in early winter, but the flowers are dying. A particular pebble may never be wetted with the tide, but the tide is coming in. For the scientific eye, all human history is a series of collective movements, destructions or migrations, like the massacre of flies in winter or the return of birds in spring. Now the root fact in all history is race. Race produces religion, race produces legal and ethical wars. There is no stronger case than that of the wild, unworldly and perishing stock which we commonly call the Celts, of whom your friends the MacNabs are specimens. Small, swarthy, and of this dreamy and drifting blood, they accept easily the superstitious explanation of any incidents, just as they still accept, you excuse me for saying, that superstitious explanation of all incidents which you and your church represent. It is not remarkable that such people, with the sea moaning behind them and the church, excuse me again, droning in front of them, should put fantastic features into what are probably plain events. You, with your small parochial responsibilities, see only this particular Mrs. MacNab, terrified with this particular tale of two voices and a tall man out of the sea. But the man with the scientific imagination sees, as it were, the whole clans of MacNab scattered over the whole world, in its ultimate average as uniform as a tribe of birds. He sees thousands of Mrs. MacNab's, in thousands of houses, dropping their little drop of morbidity into the teacups of their friends. He sees, but before the scientist could conclude his sentence, another and more impatient summons sounded from without. Someone with swishing skirts was marshalled hurriedly down the corridor, and the door opened on a young girl, decently dressed, but disordered and red-hot with haste. She had sea-blown blonde hair, and would have been entirely beautiful if her cheekbones had not been in the Scottish manner, a little high in relief as well as in colour. Her apology was almost as abrupt as a command. "'I'm sorry to interrupt you, sir,' she said, "'but I had to follow Father Brown at once. It's nothing less than life or death.' Father Brown began to get to his feet in some disorder. "'Why, what's happened, Maggie?' he said. "'James has been murdered, for all I can make out,' answered the girl, still breathing hard from her rush. "'That man Glass has been with him again. I heard them talking through the door, quite plain.' two separate voices, for James speaks low with a burr, and the other voice was high and quavery. "'That man Glass,' repeated the priest in some perplexity. "'I know his name is Glass,' answered the girl in great impatience. "'I heard it through the door. They were quarrelling. About money, I think, for I heard James say again and again, "'That's right, Mr. Glass, or no Mr. Glass, and then two or three Mr. Glass. But we're talking too much. You must come at once, and there may be time yet.' "'But time for what?' asked Dr. Hood, who had been studying the young lady with marked interest. "'What is there about Mr. Glass and his money troubles that should impel such urgency?' "'I tried to break down the door and couldn't,' answered the girl shortly. "'Then I ran to the back yard and managed to climb on to the window-sill that looks into the room. "'It was dim and seemed to be empty, but I swear I saw James lying huddled up in a corner, as if he were drugged or strangled.' "'This is very serious,' said Father Brown, gathering his errant hat and umbrella and standing up. "'In point of fact, I was just putting your case before this gentleman, and his view—' "'Has been largely altered,' said the scientist gravely. "'I do not think this young lady is so Celtic as I had supposed. "'As I have nothing else to do, I will put on my hat and stroll down town with you.' 
In a few minutes all three were approaching the dreary tail of the McNabb Street. The girl with the stern and breathless stride of the mountaineer, the criminologist with a lounging grace, which was not without a certain leopard-like swiftness, and the priest at an energetic trot entirely devoid of distinction. The aspect of this edge of the town was not entirely without justification for the doctor's hints about desolate moods and environments. The scattered houses stood farther and farther apart in a broken string along the seashore. The afternoon was closing with a premature and partly lurid twilight. The sea was of an inky purple and murmuring ominously. In the scrappy back garden of the McNabs, which ran down towards the sand, two black, barren-looking trees stood up like demon hands held up in astonishment. And as Mrs. McNab ran down the street to meet them, with lean hands similarly spread, and her fierce face in shadow, she was a little like a demon herself. The doctor and the priest made scant reply to her shrill reiterations of her daughter's story, with more disturbing details of her own, to the divided vows of vengeance against Mr. Glass for murdering, and against Mr. Todhunter for being murdered, or against the latter for having dared to want to marry her daughter, and for not having lived to do it. They passed through the narrow passage in the front of the house until they came to the lodger's door at the back, and there Dr. Hood, with the trick of an old detective, put his shoulder sharply to the panel and burst in the door. It opened on a scene of silent catastrophe. No one seeing it, even for a flash, could doubt that the room had been the theatre of some thrilling collision between two or perhaps more persons. Playing cards lay littered across the table, or fluttered about the floor, as if a game had been interrupted. Two wine-glasses stood ready for wine on a side table, but a third lay smashed in a star of crystal upon the carpet. A few feet from it lay what looked like a long knife or short sword, straight, but with an ornamental and pictured handle. Its dull blade just caught a grey glint from the dreary window behind, which showed the black trees against the leaden level of the sea. Towards the opposite corner of the room was rolled a gentleman's silk-top hat, as if it had just been knocked off his head, so much so, indeed, that one almost looked to see it rolling. And in the corner behind it, thrown like a sack of potatoes, but corded like a railway trunk, lay Mr. James Todhunter, with a scarf across his mouth, and six or seven ropes knotted around his elbows and ankles. His brown eyes were alive and shifted alertly. Dr. Orion Hood paused for one instant on the doormat, and drank in the whole scene of voiceless violence. Then he stepped swiftly across the carpet, picked up the tall silk hat, and gravely put it upon the head of the yet pinioned Todd Hunter. It was so much too large for him that it almost slipped down onto his shoulders. "'Mr. Glass's hat,' said the doctor, returning with it and peering into the inside with a pocket lens. "'How to explain the absence of Mr. Glass and the presence of Mr. Glass's hat? "'For Mr. Glass is not a careless man with his clothes. "'That hat is of a stylish shape and systematically brushed and burnished, though not very new. "'An old dandy, I should think.' "'But good heavens!' called out Miss McNabb. "'Aren't you going to untie the man first? "'I say old, with intention, though not with certainty.' continued the expositor. My reason for it might seem a little far-fetched. The hair of human beings falls out in very varying degrees, but always falls out slightly. And with the lens I should see the tiny hairs in a hat recently worn. It has none. 
which leads me to guess that Mr. Glass is bald. Now, when this is taken with the high-pitched and querulous voice which Miss McNabb described so vividly—patience, my dear lady, patience—when we take the hairless head, together with the tone common in senile anger, I should think we may deduce some advance in years. Nevertheless, he was probably vigorous, and he was almost certainly tall. I might rely in some degree on the story of his previous appearance at the window as a tall man in a silk hat, but I think I have a more exact indication. This wine-glass has been smashed all over the place, but one of his splinters lies on the high bracket beside the mantelpiece. No such fragment could have fallen there if the vessel had been smashed in the hand of a comparatively short man like Mr. Todd Hunter. "'By the way,' said Father Brown, "'might it not be as well to untie Mr. Todd Hunter?' "'Our lesson from the drinking vessels does not end here,' proceeded the specialist. "'I may say at once that it is possible that the man Glass was bald or nervous through dissipation rather than age. Mr. Todd Hunter, as has been remarked, is a quiet, thrifty gentleman, essentially an abstainer. These cards and wine-cups are no part of his normal habit. They have been produced for a particular companion. But as it happens, we may go further.' Mr. Todd Hunter may or may not possess this wine service, but there is no appearance of his possessing any wine. What, then, were these vessels to contain? I would at once suggest some brandy or whisky, perhaps of a luxurious sort, from a flask in the pocket of Mr. Glass. We have thus something like a picture of the man, or at least of the type. Tall, elderly, fashionable, but somewhat frayed, certainly fond of play and strong waters, perhaps rather too fond of them. Mr. Glass is a gentleman not unknown on the fringes of society. "'Look here,' cried the young woman. "'If you don't let me pass to untie him, I'll run outside and scream for the police.' "'I should not advise you, Mr. McNabb,' said Dr. Hood gravely, "'to be in any hurry to fetch the police. "'Father Brown, I seriously ask you to compose your flock, for their sakes, not for mine. "'Well, we have seen something of the figure and quality of Mr. Glass. "'What are the chief facts known of Mr. Todd Hunter?' They are substantially three, that he is economical, that he is more or less wealthy, and that he has a secret. Now surely it is obvious that there are the three chief marks of the kind of man who is blackmailed, and surely it is equally obvious that the faded finery, the profligate habits, and the shrill irritation of Mr. Glass are the unmistakable marks of the kind of man who blackmails him. We have the two typical figures of a tragedy of hush money, on the one hand, the respectable man with a mystery, on the other the West End vulture with a scent for a mystery. These two men have met here today and have quarrelled, using blows and a bare weapon. "'Are you going to take those ropes off?' asked the girl stubbornly. Dr. Hood replaced the silk hat carefully on the side table and went across to the captive. He studied him intently, even moving him a little and half turning him round by the shoulders, but he only answered, no, I think these ropes will do very well till your friends the police bring the handcuffs. Father Brown, who had been looking dully at the carpet, lifted his round face and said, What do you mean? The man of science had picked up the peculiar dagger sword from the carpet and was examining it intently as he answered. Because you find Mr. Todd Hunter tied up, he said, you all jumped to the conclusion that Mr. Glass has tied him up, and then, I suppose, escaped. There are four objections to this. First, why should a gentleman so dressy as our friend Glass leave his hat behind him, if he left of his own free will? 
Second, he continued moving towards the window, this is the only exit, and it is locked on the inside. Third, this blade here has a tiny touch of blood at the point, but there is no wound on Mr. Todd Hunter. Mr. Glass took that wound away with him, dead or alive. Add to all this primary probability. It is much more likely that the blackmailed person would try to kill his incubus, rather than the blackmailer would try to kill the goose that lays his golden egg. There, I think, we have a pretty complete story. But the ropes, inquired the priest, whose eyes had remained open with a rather vacant admiration. Ah, the ropes, said the expert with a singular intonation. Miss McNabb very much wanted to know why I did not set Mr. Todhunter free from his ropes. Well, I will tell her. I did not do it because Mr. Todhunter can set himself free from them at any minute he chooses. What? cried the audience, on quite different notes of astonishment. I have looked at all the knots on Mr. Todhunter, reiterated Hood quietly. I happen to know something about knots. They are quite a branch of criminal science. Every one of those knots he has made himself and could loosen himself. Not one of them would have been made by an enemy really trying to pinion him. The whole of this affair of the ropes is a clever fake to make us think him the victim of the struggle, instead of the wretched glass whose corpse may be hidden in the garden or stuffed up the chimney. There was a rather depressed silence. The room was darkening. The sea-blighted boughs of the garden trees looked leaner and blacker than ever, yet they seemed to have come nearer to the window. One could almost fancy they were sea-monsters like krakens or cuttlefish, writhing polypi who had crawled up from the sea to see the end of this tragedy, even as he, the villain and victim of it, the terrible man in the tall hat, had once crawled up from the sea. For the whole air was dense with the morbidity of blackmail, which is the most morbid of human things, because it is a crime concealing a crime, a black plaster on a blacker wound. The face of the little Catholic priest, which was commonly complacent and even comic, had suddenly become knotted with a curious frown. It was not the blank curiosity of his first innocence, it was rather the creative curiosity which comes when a man has the beginnings of an idea. "'Say it again, please,' he said in a simple, bothered manner. "'Do you mean that Todd Hunter can tie himself up all alone and untie himself all alone?' "'That is what I mean,' said the doctor. Jerusalem, ejaculated Brown suddenly. I wonder if it could possibly be that. He scuttled across the room rather like a rabbit, and peered with a quite new impulsiveness into the partially covered face of the captive. Then he turned his own rather fatuous face to the company. Yes, that's it, he cried, in a certain excitement. Can't you see it in the man's face? Why, look at his eyes. Both the professor and the girl followed the direction of his glance. And though the broad black scarf completely masked the lower half of Todd Hunter's visage, they did grow conscious of something struggling and intense about the upper part of it. His eyes do look queer, cried the young woman, strongly moved. You brutes, I believe it's hurting him. Not that, I think, said Dr. Hood. The eyes have certainly a singular expression, but I should interpret those transverse wrinkles as expressing rather such slight psychological abnormality. Oh! Bosh! cried Father Brown. Can't you see he's laughing? Laughing? repeated the doctor with a start. But what on earth can he be laughing at? Well, replied the Reverend Brown apologetically, not to put too fine a point on it, I think he's laughing at you. And indeed, 
I'm a little inclined to laugh at myself, now I know about it. Now you know about what? asked Hood in some exasperation. Now I know, replied the priest, the profession of Mr. Todd Hunter. He shuffled about the room, looking at one object after another, with what seemed to be a vacant stare, and then invariably bursting into an equally vacant laugh, a highly irritating process for those who had to watch it. He laughed very much over the hat, still more uproariously over the broken glass, but the blood on the sword-point sent him into mortal convulsions of amusement. Then he turned to the fuming specialists. "'Dr. Hood,' he cried enthusiastically, "'you are a great poet.' You have called an uncreated being out of the void. How much more godlike that is than if you had only ferreted out the mere facts. Indeed, the mere facts are rather commonplace and comic by comparison. I have no notion what you are talking about, said Dr. Hood rather haughtily. My facts are all inevitable, though necessarily incomplete. A place may be permitted to intuition, perhaps, or poetry, if you prefer the term, but only because the corresponding details cannot as yet be ascertained. In the absence of Mr. Glass— "'That's it, that's it,' said the little priest, nodding quite eagerly. "'That's the first idea to get fixed, the absence of Mr. Glass. He is so extremely absent, I suppose,' he added reflectively, "'that there was never anybody so absent as Mr. Glass.' "'Do you mean he's absent from the town?' demanded the doctor. "'I mean, he's absent from everywhere,' answered Father Brown. "'He is absent from the nature of things, so to speak.' "'Do you seriously mean,' said the specialist with a smile, "'that there is no such person?' The priest made a sign of assent. "'It does seem a pity,' he said. Orion Hood broke into a contemptuous laugh. "'Well,' he said, "'before we go on to the hundred and one other evidences, "'let us take the first proof we found.' The first fact we fell over when we fell into this room. If there is no Mr. Glass, whose hat is this? It's Mr. Todd Hunter's, replied Father Brown. But it doesn't fit him, cried Hood impatiently. He couldn't possibly wear it. Father Brown shook his head with ineffable mildness. I never said he could wear it, he answered. I said it was his hat. Or, if you insist on a shade of difference, a hat that is his. "'And what is the shade of difference?' asked the criminologist, with a slight sneer. "'My good sir,' cried the mild little man, with his first movement akin to impatience, "'if you will walk down the street to the nearest hatter's shop, "'you will see that there is, in common speech, "'a difference between a man's hat and the hat that is his.' "'But a hatter,' protested Hood, "'can get money out of his stock of new hats. "'What could Todd Hunter get out of this one old hat?' "'Rabbits,' replied Father Brown promptly. "'What?' cried Dr. Hood. "'Rabbits, ribbons, sweetmeats, goldfish, rolls of coloured paper,' said the reverend gentleman with rapidity. "'Didn't you see it all when you found out the fake ropes? "'It's just the same with the sword. "'Mr. Todd Hunter hasn't got a scratch on him, as you say. "'But he's got a scratch in him, if you follow me.' "'Do you mean inside Mr. Todd Hunter's clothes?' inquired Mrs. McNabb sternly. "'I do not mean inside Mr. Todd Hunter's clothes,' said Father Brown. "'I mean inside Mr. Todd Hunter. "'Well, what in the name of Bedlam do you mean?' "'Mr. Todd Hunter,' explained Father Brown placidly, "'is learning to be a professional conjurer, "'as well as a juggler, ventriloquist, and expert in the rope trick. "'The conjuring explains the hat. "'It is without traces of hair, "'not because it is worn by the prematurely bald Mr. Glass, "'but because it has never been worn by anybody.' 
The juggling explains the three glasses, which Todd Hunter was teaching him to throw up and catch in rotation. But being only at the stage of practice, he smashed one glass against the ceiling. And the juggling also explains the sword, which it was Mr. Todd Hunter's professional pride and duty to swallow. But again, being at the stage of practice, he very slightly grazed the inside of his throat with the weapon. Hence he has a wound inside him, which I am sure, from the expression on his face, is not a serious one. He was also practising the trick of a release from ropes, like the Davenport brothers, and he was just about to free himself when we all burst into the room. The cards, of course, are for card tricks, and they are scattered on the floor because he had just been practising one of those dodges of sending them flying through the air. He merely kept his trade secret because he had to keep his tricks secret, like any other conjurer. But the mere fact of an idler in a top-hat having once looked in at his back window and been driven away by him with great indignation was enough to set us all on a wrong track of romance and make us imagine his whole life overshadowed by the silk-hatted spectre of Mr. Glass. "'But what about the two voices?' asked Maggie, staring. "'Have you never heard of ventriloquist?' asked Father Brown. "'Don't you know they speak first in their natural voice "'and then answer themselves in just that shrill, squeaky, unnatural voice that you heard?' There was a long silence, and Dr. Hood regarded the little man who had spoken with a dark and attentive smile. "'You are certainly a very ingenious person,' he said. "'It could not have been done better in a book, "'but there is just one part of Mr. Glass "'you have not succeeded in explaining away, "'and that is his name. "'Miss McNabb distinctly heard him so addressed by Mr. Todd Hunter.' "'The Reverend Mr. Brown broke into a rather childish giggle. "'Well, that,' he said, "'that's the silliest part of the whole silly story. "'When our juggling friend here threw up the three glasses in turn, "'he counted them aloud as he caught them and also commented aloud when he failed to catch them. What he really says was one, two, and three, Mr. Glass, one, two, Mr. Glass, and so on. There was a second of stillness in the room, and then everyone with one accord burst out laughing. As they did so, the figure in the corner complacently uncoiled all the ropes and let them fall with a flourish. Then, advancing into the middle of the room with a bow, he produced from his pocket a big bill printed in blue and red, which announced that Zaladin, the world's greatest conjurer, contortionist, ventriloquist, and human kangaroo, would be ready with an entirely new series of tricks at the Empire Pavilion, Scarborough, on Monday next, at eight o'clock, precisely. End of chapter. The Wisdom of Father Brown by G. K. Chesterton Read by Martin Clifton Chapter 2. The Paradise of Thieves The great Muscari, most original of the young Tuscan poets, walked swiftly into his favourite restaurant, which overlooked the Mediterranean, was covered by an awning and fenced by little lemon and orange trees. Waiters in white aprons were already laying out on white tables the insignia of an early and elegant lunch, and this seemed to increase a satisfaction that already touched the top of swagger. Mascari had an eagle nose like Dante. His hair and neckerchief were dark and flowing. He carried a black cloak, and might almost have carried a black mask, so much did he bear with him a sort of Venetian melodrama. He acted as if a troubadour had still a definite social office like a bishop. He went as near as his century permitted to walking the world literally like Don Juan, 
with rapier and guitar. For he never travelled without a case of swords, with which he had fought many brilliant duels, or without a corresponding case for his mandolin, with which he had actually serenaded Miss Ethel Harrogate, the highly conventional daughter of a Yorkshire banker on holiday. Yet he was neither a charlatan nor a child, but a hot, logical Latin, who liked a certain thing and was it. His poetry was as straightforward as anyone else's prose. He desired fame, or wine, or the beauty of women with a torrid directness inconceivable among the cloudy ideals or cloudy compromise of the North. To vaguer races his intensity smelt of danger or even crime. Like fire or the sea, he was too simple to be trusted. The banker and his beautiful daughter were staying at the hotel attached to Mascari's restaurant, and that was why it was his favourite restaurant. A glance flashed around the room told him at once, however, that the English party had not descended. The restaurant was glittering, but still comparatively empty. Two priests were talking at a table in the corner, but Mascari, an ardent Catholic, took no more notice of them than of a couple of crows. But from a yet farther seat, partly concealed behind a dwarf tree golden with oranges, there rose and advanced towards the poet a person whose costume was the most aggressively opposite to his own. This figure was clad in tweeds of piebald check, with a pink tie, a sharp collar, and protuberant yellow boots. He contrived, in the true tradition of Harriet Margate, to look at once startling and commonplace. But as the cockney apparition drew nearer, Muscari was astounded to observe that the head was distinctly different from the body. It was an Italian head, fuzzy, swarthy, and very vivacious, that rose abruptly out of the standing collar-like cardboard and the comic pink tie. In fact, it was a head he knew. He recognised it, above all the dire erection of English holiday array, as the face of an old but forgotten friend named Ezra. This youth had been a prodigy at college, and European fame was promised him when he was barely fifteen. But when he appeared in the world, he failed, first publicly as a dramatist and a demagogue, and then privately for years on end as an actor, a traveller, a commission agent, or a journalist. Muscari had known him last behind the footlights. He was but too well attuned to the excitements of that profession, and it was believed that some moral calamity had swallowed him up. Ezra cried the poet, rising and shaking hand in a pleasant astonishment. Well, I've seen you in many costumes in the green room, but I never expected to see you dressed up as an Englishman. This, answered Ezra gravely, is not the costume of an Englishman, but of the Italian of the future. In that case, remarked Mascari, I confess I prefer the Italian of the past. "'That is your old mistake, Mascari,' said the man in tweeds, shaking his head, "'and the mistake of Italy. "'In the sixteenth century we Tuscans made the morning. "'We had the newest steel, the newest carving, the newest chemistry. "'Why should we not now have the newest factories, "'the newest motors, the newest finance, the newest clothes?' "'Because they are not worth having,' answered Mascari. "'You cannot make Italians really progressive. "'They're too intelligent.' Men who see the shortcut to good living will never go by the new elaborate roads. Well, to me, Marconi or D'Annunzio is the star of Italy, said the other. That is why I have become a futurist and a courier. 
A courier, cried Muscari, laughing. Is that the last of your list of trades, and whom are you conducting? Oh, a man of the name of Harrogate and his family, I believe. Not the banker in this hotel, inquired the poet, with some eagerness. That's the man, answered the courier. Does it pay well? asked the troubadour innocently. It will pay me, said Ezra, with a very enigmatic smile. But I am a rather curious sort of courier. Then, as if changing the subject, he said abruptly, He has a daughter, and a son. The daughter is divine, affirmed Muscari. The father and son are, I suppose, human. But granted his harmless qualities, doesn't that banker strike you as a splendid instance of my argument? Harrogate has millions in his safes, and I have the hole in my pocket. But you don't say, you can't say, that he's cleverer than I, or bolder than I, or even more energetic. He's not clever. He's got eyes like blue buttons. He's not energetic. He moves from chair to chair like a paralytic. He's a conscientious, kindly old blockhead, but he's got money simply because he collects money, as a boy collects stamps. You're too strong-minded for business, Ezra. You won't get on. To be clever enough to get all that money, one must be stupid enough to want it. I'm stupid enough for that, said Ezra gloomily. But I should suggest a suspension of your critique of the banker, for here he comes. Mr. Harrogate, the great financier, did indeed enter the room, but nobody looked at him. He was a massive elderly man, with a boiled blue eye and faded grey sandy moustaches. But for his heavy stoop he might have been a colonel. He carried several unopened letters in his hand. His son Frank was a really fine lad, curly-haired, sunburnt and strenuous, but nobody looked at him either. All eyes, as usual, were riveted, for the moment at least, upon Ethel Harrogate, whose golden Greek head and colour of the dawn seemed set purposely above that sapphire sea like a goddess. The poet Muscari drew a deep breath as if he were drinking something, as indeed he was. He was drinking the classic, which his father's made. Ezra studied her with a gaze equally intense and far more baffling. Miss Harrogate was specially radiant and ready for conversation on this occasion, and her family had fallen into the easier continental habit, allowing the stranger Muscari and even the courier Ezra to share their table and their talk. In Ethel Harrogate, conventionality crowned itself with a perfection and splendour of its own. Proud of her father's prosperity, fond of fashionable pleasures, a fond daughter, but an arrant flirt, she was all these things with a sort of golden good nature that made her very pride pleasing and her worldly respectability a fresh and hearty thing. They were in an eddy of excitement about some alleged peril in the mountain path they were to attempt that week. The danger was not from rock and avalanche, but from something yet more romantic. Ethel had been earnestly assured that brigands, the true cutthroats of the modern legend, still haunted that ridge and held that pass of the Apennines. They say, she cried, with the awful relish of a schoolgirl, that all that country isn't ruled by the King of Italy, but by the King of Thieves. Who is the King of Thieves? A great man, replied Muscari, worthy to rank with your own Robin Hood, signorina. Montano, the King of Thieves, was first heard of in the mountains some ten years ago, when people said brigands were extinct. But his wild authority spread with the swiftness of a silent revolution. Men found his fierce proclamations nailed in every mountain village, his sentinels gun in hand in every mountain ravine. 
Six times the Italian government tried to dislodge him, and was defeated in six pitched battles, as if by Napoleon. "'Now that sort of thing,' observed the banker weightily, "'would never be allowed in England. Perhaps, after all, we had better choose another route. But the courier thought it perfectly safe.' "'It is perfectly safe,' said the courier contemptuously. "'I have been over it twenty times.' There may have been some old jailbird called a king in the time of our grandmothers, but he belongs to history, if not to fable. Brigandage is utterly stamped out. It can never be utterly stamped out, Muscari answered, because armed revolt is a recreation natural to southerners. Our peasants are like their mountains, rich in grace and green gaiety, but with the fires beneath. There is a point of human despair where the northern poor take to drink, and our own poor take to daggers. "'A poet is privileged,' replied Ezra with a sneer. "'If Signor Muscari were English, he would still be looking for highwaymen in Wandsworth. Believe me, there is no more danger of being captured in Italy than of being scalped in Boston.' "'Then you propose to attempt it?' asked Mr. Harrogate, frowning. "'Oh, it sounds rather dreadful,' cried the girl, turning her glorious eyes on Muscari. "'Do you really think the pass is dangerous?' Muscari threw back his black mane. I know it is dangerous, he said. I am crossing it to-morrow. The young Harrogate was left behind for a moment, emptying a glass of white wine and lighting a cigarette, as the beauty retired with the banker, the courier, and the poet, distributing peals of silvery satire. At about the same instant the two priests in the corner rose, the taller, a white-haired Italian, taking his leave. The shorter priest turned and walked towards the banker's son, and the latter was astonished to realise that though a Roman priest, the man was an Englishman. He vaguely remembered meeting him at the social crushes of some of his Catholic friends, but the man spoke before his memories could collect themselves. "'Mr. Frank Harrogate, I think,' he said. "'I have had an introduction, but I do not mean to presume on it. The odd thing I have to say will come far better from a stranger.' Mr. Harrogate, I say one word and go. Take care of your sister in her great sorrow. Even for Frank's truly fraternal indifference, the radiance and derision of his sister still seemed to sparkle and ring. He could hear her laughter still from the garden of the hotel, and he stared at his sombre adviser in puzzledom. Do you mean the brigands? he asked, and then, remembering a vague fear of his own, or can you be thinking of Mascari? One is never thinking of the real sorrow, said the strange priest. One can only be kind when it comes. And he passed promptly from the room, leaving the other almost with his mouth open. A day or two afterwards, a coach containing the company was really crawling and staggering at the spurs of the menacing mountain range. Between Ezra's cheery denial of the danger and Mascari's boisterous defiance of it, the financial family were firm in their original purpose and Muscari made his mountain journey coincide with theirs. A more surprising feature was the appearance at the coast-town station of the little priest of the restaurant. He alleged merely that business led him also to cross the mountains of the Midland. But young Harrogate could not but connect his presence with the mystical fears and warnings of yesterday. The coach was a kind of commodious wagonette, invented by the modernist talent of the courier, who dominated the expedition with his scientific activity and breezy wit. 
The theory of danger from thieves was banished from thought and speech, though so far conceded in formal act that some slight protection was employed. The courier and the young banker carried loaded revolvers, and Mascari, with much boyish gratification, buckled on a kind of cutlass under his black cloak. He had planted his person at a flying leap next to the lovely Englishwoman. On the other side of her sat the priest, whose name was Brown, and who was fortunately a silent individual. The courier and the father and the son were on the bank behind. Muscari was in towering spirits, seriously believing in the peril, and his talk to Ethel might well have made her think him a maniac. But there was something in the crazy and gorgeous ascent, amid crags like peaks, loaded with woods like orchards, that dragged her spirit up alone with his into purple preposterous heavens with wheeling suns. The white road climbed like a white cat. It spans sunless chasms like a tightrope. It was flung round far-off headlands like a lasso. And yet, however high they went, the desert still blossomed like the rose. The fields were burnished in sun and wind, with the colour of kingfisher and parrot and hummingbird, and hues of a hundred flowering flowers. There are no lovelier meadows and woodlands than the English, no nobler crests or chasms than those of Snowdon or Glencoe, but Ethel Harrogate had never before seen the southern parks tilted on the splintered northern peaks, the gorge of Glencoe laden with the fruits of Kent. There was nothing here of that chill and desolation that in Britain one associates with high and wild scenery. It was rather like a mosaic palace rent with earthquakes, or like a Dutch tulip garden blown to the stars with dynamite. "'It's like Kew Gardens on Beachy Head,' said Ethel. It is our secret, answered he, the secret of the volcano. That is also the secret of the revolution, that a thing can be violent and yet fruitful. You are rather violent yourself. And she smiled at him. And yet rather fruitless, he admitted. If I die tonight, I die unmarried and a fool. It's not my fault if you've come, she said, after a difficult silence. It is never your fault, answered Muscari. It was not your fault that Troy fell. As they spoke, they came under overwhelming cliffs that spread almost like wings above a corner of peculiar peril. Shocked by the big shadow on the narrow ledge, the horses stirred doubtfully. The driver leapt to the earth to hold their heads, and they became ungovernable. One horse reared up to his full height, the titanic and terrifying height of a horse when he becomes a biped. It was just enough to alter the equilibrium. The whole coach heeled over like a ship and crashed through the fringe of bushes over the cliff. Muscari threw an arm round Ethel, who clung to him, and shouted aloud. It was for such moments that he lived. At the moment when the gorgeous mountain walls went round the poet's head like a purple windmill, a thing happened which was superficially even more startling. The elderly and lethargic banker sprang erect in the coach and leapt over the precipice before the tilted vehicle could take him there. In the first flash it looked as wild as suicide, but in the second it was as sensible as a safe investment. The Yorkshireman had evidently more promptitude as well as more sagacity than Muscari had given him credit for, for he landed in a lap of land which might have been specially padded with turf and clover to receive him. As it happened, indeed, the whole company were equally lucky, if less dignified, in their form of ejection. 
Immediately under this abrupt turn of the road was a grassy and flowery hollow, like a sunken meadow, a sort of green velvet pocket in the long, green, trailing garments of the hills. Into this they were all tipped or tumbled, with little damage, save that their smallest baggage and even the contents of their pockets were scattered in the grass around them. The wrecked coach still hung above, entangled in the tough hedge, and the horses plunged painfully down the slope. The first to sit up was the little priest, who scratched his head with a face of foolish wonder. Frank Harrogate heard him say to himself, Now, why on earth have we fallen just here? He blinked at the litter around him, and recovered his own very clumsy umbrella. Beyond it lay the broad sombrero, fallen from the head of Muscari, and beside it a sealed business letter, which, after a glance at the address, he returned to the elder Harrogate. On the other side of him the grass partly hid Miss Ethel's sunshade, and just beyond it lay a curious little glass bottle, hardly two inches long. The priest picked it up. In a quick, unobtrusive manner he uncorked and sniffed it, and his heavy face turned the colour of clay. "'Heaven deliver us,' he muttered. "'It can't be hers. "'Has her sorrow come on her already?' "'He slipped it into his own waistcoat pocket. "'I think I'm justified,' he said, "'till I know a little more.' "'He gazed painfully at the girl, "'at that moment being raised out of the flowers by Muscari, "'who was saying, "'We have fallen into heaven. "'It is a sign. "'Mortals climb up, and they fall down. "'But it is only the gods and goddesses "'who can fall upwards.' And, indeed, she rode out of the sea of colours so beautiful and happy a vision that the priest felt his suspicion shaken and shifted. After all, he thought, perhaps the poison isn't hers. Perhaps it's one of Muscari's melodramatic tricks. Muscari set the lady lightly on her feet, made her an absurdly theatrical bow, and then, drawing his cutlass, hacked hard at the taut reins of the horses, so that they scrambled to their feet and stood in the grass trembling. When he had done so, a most remarkable thing occurred. A very quiet man, very poorly dressed and extremely sunburnt, came out of the bushes and took hold of the horses' heads. He had a queer-shaped knife, very broad and crooked, buckled on his belt. There was nothing else remarkable about him except his sudden and silent appearance. The poet asked him who he was, and he did not answer. Looking around him at the confused and startled group in the hollow, Muscari then perceived that another tanned and tattered man, with a short gun under his arm, was looking at them from the ledge just below, leaning his elbows on the edge of the turf. Then he looked up at the road from which they had fallen and saw, looking down on them, the muzzles of four other carbines and four other brown faces with bright but quite motionless eyes. "'The brigands!' cried Muscari, with a kind of monstrous gaiety. "'This was a trap. Ezra, if you will oblige me by shooting the coachman first, we can cut our way out yet. There are only six of them.' "'The coachman,' said Ezra, who was standing grimly with his hands in his pockets, "'happened to be a servant of Mr. Harrogate's.' "'Then shoot him all the more!' cried the poet impatiently. "'He was bribed to upset his master. "'Then put the lady in the middle, and we will break the line up there with a rush.' and, wading in wild grass and flowers, he advanced fearlessly on the four carbines. But finding that no one followed except young Harrogate, he turned, 
brandishing his cutlass to wave the others on. He beheld the courier still standing slightly astride in the centre of the grassy ring, his hands in his pockets, and his lean, ironical Italian face seemed to grow longer and longer in the evening light. "'You thought, Muscari, I was the failure among our schoolfellows,' he said, "'and you thought you were the success. But I have succeeded more than you, and fill a bigger place in history. I have been acting epics while you have been writing them.' "'Come on, I tell you,' thundered Muscari from above. "'Will you stand there talking nonsense about yourself, "'with a woman to save and three strong men to help you? "'What do you call yourself?' "'I call myself Montano,' cried the strange courier, "'in a voice equally loud and full. "'I am the King of Thieves, and I welcome you all to my summer palace.' "'And even as he spoke, five more silent men with weapons ready "'came out of the bushes.' and looked towards him for their orders. One of them held a large paper in his hand. "'This pretty little nest where we are all picnicking,' went on the courier brigand, with the same easy yet sinister smile, is, together with some caves underneath it, known by the name of the Paradise of Thieves. It is my principal stronghold on these hills, for, as you have doubtless noticed, the eyrie is invisible both from the road above and from the valley below. It is something better than impregnable. It is unnoticeable. Here I mostly live, and here I shall certainly die if the gendarmes ever track me here. I am not the kind of criminal that reserves his defence, but the better kind that reserves his last bullet. All were staring at him thunderstruck, and still, except Father Brown, who heaved a huge sigh, as of relief, and fingered the little file in his pocket. "'Thank God,' he muttered. "'That's much more probable. The poison belongs to this robber chief, of course. He carries it so that he may never be captured, like Cato.' The King of Thieves was, however, continuing his address with the same kind of dangerous politeness. "'It only remains for me,' he said, "'to explain to my guests the social conditions upon which I have the pleasure of entertaining them.' I need not expound the quaint old ritual of ransom which it is incumbent upon me to keep up, and even this only applies to a part of the company. The Reverend Father Brown and the celebrated Signor Muscari I shall release to-morrow at dawn and escort to my outposts. Poets and priests, if you will pardon my simplicity of speech, never have any money. And so, since it is impossible to get anything out of them, let us seize the opportunity to show our admiration for classic literature and our reverence for Holy Church. He paused with an unpleasing smile, and Father Brown blinked repeatedly at him, and seemed suddenly to be listening with great attention. The brigand captain took the large paper from the attendant brigand, and, glancing over it, continued. My other intentions are clearly set forth in this public document which I will hand around in a moment, and which after that will be posted on a tree by every village in the valley, and every crossroad in the hills. I will not weary you with the verbalism, since you will be able to check it. The substance of my proclamation is this. I announce first that I have captured the English millionaire, the colossus of finance, Mr. Samuel Harrogate. I next announce that I have found on his person notes and bonds for £2,000, 
which he has given up to me. Now, since it would be really immoral to announce such a thing to a credulous public if it had not occurred, I suggest it should occur without further delay. I suggest that Mr. Harrogate Sr. should now give me the £2,000 in his pocket. The banker looked at him under lowering brows, red-faced and sulky, but seemingly cowed. The leap from the failing carriage seemed to have used up his last virility. He had held back in a hang-dog style when his son and Muscari had made a bold movement to break out of the brigand trap, and now his red and trembling hand went reluctantly to his breast-pocket, and passed a bundle of papers and envelopes to the brigand. "'Excellent!' cried the outlaw gaily. "'So far we are all cosy. I resume the points of my proclamation so soon to be published to all Italy. The third item is that of ransom.' I am asking from the friends of the Harrogate family a ransom of three thousand pounds, which I am sure is almost insulting to that family in its moderate estimate of their importance. Who would not pay triple this sum for another day's association with such a domestic circle? I will not conceal from you that the document ends with certain legal phrases about the unpleasant things that may happen if the money is not paid. But meanwhile, ladies and gentlemen, let me assure you that I am comfortably off here for accommodation, wine and cigars, and bid you for the present a sportsmanlike welcome to the luxuries of the Paradise of Thieves. All the time that he had been speaking, the dubious-looking men with carbines and dirty slouch hats had been gathering silently in such preponderating numbers that even Muscari was compelled to recognise his sally with the sword as hopeless. He glanced around him but the girl had already gone over to soothe and comfort her father, for her natural affection for his person was as strong or stronger than her somewhat snobbish pride in his success. Muscari, with the illogicality of a lover, admired this filial devotion, and yet was irritated by it. He slapped his sword back in the scabbard, and went and flung himself, somewhat sulkily, on one of the green banks. The priest sat down within a yard or two, and Muscari turned his aquiline nose on him in an instantaneous irritation. "'Well,' said the poet tartly, "'do people still think me too romantic? Are there, I wonder, any brigands left in the mountains?' "'There may be,' said Father Brown agnostically. "'What do you mean?' asked the other sharply. "'I mean I am puzzled,' replied the priest. "'I am puzzled about Ezra or Montano, or whatever his name is, he seems to me much more inexplicable as a brigand even than when he was a courier. "'But in what way?' persisted his companion. "'Santa Maria, I should have thought the brigand was plain enough.' "'I find three curious difficulties,' said the priest in a quiet voice. "'I should like to have your opinion of them. First of all, I must tell you I was lunching in that restaurant at the seaside. As four of you left the room, you and Miss Harrogate went ahead, talking and laughing.' The banker and the courier came behind, speaking sparely and rather low. But I could not help hearing Ezra say these words. Well, let her have a little fun. You know the blow may smash her at any minute. Mr. Harrogate answered nothing, so the words must have had some meaning. On the impulse of the moment I warned her brother that she might be in peril. I said nothing of its nature, for I did not know. But if it meant this capture in the hills, the thing is nonsense. Why should the brigand courier warn his patron, even by a hint, 
when it was his whole purpose to lure him into the mountain mousetrap. It could not have meant that. But if not, what is this disaster, known both to courier and banker, which hangs over Miss Harrogate's head? Disaster to Miss Harrogate, ejaculated the poet, sitting up with some ferocity. Explain yourself. Go on. All my riddles, however, revolve around our bandit chief, resumed the priest reflectively. And here is the second of them. Why did he put so prominently in his demand for ransom the fact that he had taken two thousand pounds from his victim on the spot? It had no faintest tendency to evoke the ransom. Quite the other way, in fact. Harrogate's friends would be far likelier to fear for his fate if they thought the thieves were poor and desperate. Yet the spoliation on the spot was emphasised, and even put first in the demand. Why should Ezra Montano want so specifically to tell all Europe that he had picked the pocket before he levied the blackmail? I cannot imagine, said Mascari, rubbing up his black hair for once with an unaffected gesture. You may think you enlighten me, but you are leading me deeper in the dark. What may be the third objection to the King of Thieves? The third objection, said Father Brown, still in meditation, is this bank we are sitting on. Why does our brigand courier call this his chief fortress and the paradise of thieves? It is certainly a soft spot to fall on, and a sweet spot to look at. It is also quite true, as he says, that it is invisible from the valley and peak, and is therefore a hiding place. But it is not a fortress. It never could be a fortress. I think it would be the worst fortress in the world for it is actually commanded from above by the common high road across the mountains, the very place where the police would most probably pass. Why, five shabby short guns held us helpless here about half an hour ago. The quarter of a company of any kind of soldiers could have blown us over the precipice. Whatever is the meaning of this odd little nook of grass and flowers, it is not an entrenched position. It is something else. It has some other strange sort of importance, some value that I do not understand. It is more like an accidental theatre or a natural green room. It is like the scene of some romantic comedy. It is like, as the little priest's words lengthened and lost themselves in a dull and dreamy sincerity, Muscari, whose animal senses were alert and impatient, heard a new noise in the mountains. Even for him the sound was as yet very small and faint but he could have sworn that the evening breeze bore with it something like the pulsation of horses' hooves and a distant hallooing. At the same moment, and long before the vibration had touched the less experienced English ears, Montano the brigand ran up the bank above them and stood in the broken hedge, steadying himself against a tree and peering down the road. He was a strange figure as he stood there, for he had assumed a flapped fantastic hat and swinging baldric and cutlass in his capacity of bandit king. But the bright prosaic tweed of the courier showed through in patches all over him. The next moment he turned his olive sneering face and made a movement with his hand. The brigands scattered at the signal, not in confusion, but in what was evidently a kind of guerrilla discipline. Instead of occupying the road along the ridge, they sprinkled themselves along the side of it, behind the trees and the hedge, as if watching unseen for an enemy. The noise beyond grew stronger, beginning to shake the mountain road, 
and a voice could be clearly heard calling out orders. The brigands swayed and huddled, cursing and whispering, and the evening air was full of little metallic noises as they cocked their pistols or loosened their knives, or trailed their scabbards over the stones. Then the noises from both quarters seemed to meet on the road above. Branches broke, horses neighed, men cried out. "'A rescue!' cried Mascari, springing to his feet and waving his hat. "'The gendarmes are on them. Now for freedom and a blow for it. Now to be rebels against robbers. Come, don't let us leave everything to the police. That is so dreadfully modern. Fall on the rear of these ruffians. The gendarmes are rescuing us. Come, friends, let us rescue the gendarmes.' And throwing his hat over the trees, he drew his cutlass once more, and began to escalade the slope up to the road. Frank Harrogate jumped up and ran across to help him, revolver in hand, but was astounded to hear himself imperatively recalled by the raucous voice of his father, who seemed to be in great agitation. "'I won't have it,' said the banker, in a choking voice. "'I command you not to interfere.' "'But, father,' said Frank very warmly. An Italian gentleman has led the way. You wouldn't have it said that the English hung back. It is useless, said the older man, who was trembling violently. It is useless. We must submit to our lot. Father Brown looked at the banker. Then he put his hand instinctively, as if on his heart, but really on the little bottle of poison, and a great light came into his face, like the light of the revelation of death. Muscari, meanwhile, without waiting for support, had crested the bank up to the road, and struck the brigand king heavily on the shoulder, causing him to stagger and swing round. Montano also had his cutlass unsheathed, and Muscari, without further speech, sent a slash at his head, which he was compelled to catch and parry. But even as the two short blades crossed and clashed, the king of thieves deliberately dropped his point and laughed. "'What's the good old man?' he said, in spirited Italian slang. "'This damned farce will soon be over.' "'What do you mean, you shuffler?' panted the fire-eating poet. "'Is your courage a sham as well as your honesty?' "'Everything about me is a sham,' responded the ex-courier in complete good humour. "'I am an actor, and if I ever had a private character, I have forgotten it. "'I am no more a genuine brigand than I am a genuine courier.' I'm only a bundle of masks, and you can't fight a jewel with that. And he laughed with boyish pleasure, and fell into his old straddling attitude, with his back to the skirmish up the road. Darkness was deepening under the mountain walls, and it was not easy to discern much of the progress of the struggle, save that tall men were pushing their horses' muzzles through a clinging crowd of brigands, who seemed more inclined to harass and hustle the invaders than to kill them. It was more like a town crowd preventing the passage of the police than anything the poet had ever pictured as the last stand of doomed and outlawed men of blood. Just as he was rolling his eyes in bewilderment, he felt a touch on his elbow, and found the old little priest standing there like a small Noah with a large hat, and requesting the favour of a word or two. "'Signor Mascari,' said the cleric, "'in this queer crisis personalities may be pardoned.' I may tell you without offence of a way in which you will do more good than by helping the gendarmes, who are bound to break through in any case. You will permit me the impertinent intimacy, but do you care about that girl? Care enough to marry her and make her a good husband, I mean? Yes, 
said the poet quite simply. Does she care about you? I think so, was the equally grave reply. Then go over there and offer yourself, said the priest. Offer her everything you can. Offer her heaven and earth if you've got them. The time is short. Why? asked the astonished man of letters. Because, said Father Brown, her doom is coming up the road. Nothing is coming up the road, argued Muscari, except the rescue. Well, you go over there, said his adviser, and be ready to rescue her from the rescue. Almost as he spoke, the hedges were broken all along the ridge by a rush of the escaping brigands. They dived into bushes and thick grass like defeated men pursued, and the great cocked hats of the mounted gendarmerie were seen passing along above the broken hedge. Another order was given, there was a noise of dismounting, and a tall officer with a cocked hat, a grey imperial, and a paper in his hand appeared in the gap that was the gate of the paradise of thieves. There was a momentary silence, broken in an extraordinary way by the banker, who cried out in a hoarse and strangled voice, "'Robbed! I've been robbed!' "'Why, that was hours ago,' cried his son in astonishment, "'when you were robbed of two thousand pounds.' "'Not of two thousand pounds,' said the financier, "'with an abrupt and terrible composure, "'only of a small bottle.' "'The policeman with the grey imperial "'was striding across the green hollow. "'Encountering the king of thieves in his path, "'he clapped him on the shoulder "'with something between a caress and a buffet, and gave him a push that sent him staggering away. "'You'll get into trouble too,' he said, "'if you play these tricks.' Again, to Mascara's artistic eye, it seemed scarcely like the capture of a great outlaw at bay. Passing on, the policeman halted before the Harrogate group and said, "'Samuel Harrogate, I arrest you in the name of the law for embezzlement of the funds of the Hull and Huddersfield Bank.' The great banker nodded with an odd air of business assent, seemed to reflect a moment, and before they could interpose, took a half-turn and a step that brought him to the edge of the outer mountain wall. Then, flinging up his hands, he leapt exactly as he had leapt out of the coach. But this time he did not fall into a little meadow just beneath. He fell a thousand feet below to become a wreck of bones in the valley. The anger of the Italian policeman, which he expressed volubly to Father Brown, was largely mixed with admiration. It was like him to escape us at last, he said. He was a great brigand, if you like. This last trick of his, I believe, to be absolutely unprecedented. He fled with the company's money to Italy, and actually got himself captured by sham brigands in his own pay, so as to explain both the disappearance of the money and the disappearance of himself. That demand for ransom was really taken seriously by most of the police. But for years he's been doing things as good as that, quite as good as that. He will be a serious loss to his family. Muscari was leading away the unhappy daughter, who held hard to him, as she did for many a year after. But even in that tragic wreck he could not help having a smile and a hand of half-mocking friendship for the indefensible Ezra Montano. "'And where are you going next?' he asked him over his shoulder. "'Birmingham,' answered the actor, puffing a cigarette. "'Didn't I tell you I was a futurist? "'I really do believe in those things if I believe in anything. "'Change, bustle, and new things every morning. "'I'm going to Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, Hull, Huddersfield, Glasgow, 
Chicago, in short, to enlightened, energetic, civilized society. In short, said Muscari, to the real paradise of thieves. End of chapter. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.